Amen. Please be seated. Today we will pause from our journey through the prophet Hosea in order to contemplate the beginning of Jesus' so-called Passion Week. Christ's Passion Ministry refers to the last week of his life before he goes to the cross and then rises again on Easter Sunday. It's called the Passion Week or it's called Holy Week, whatever you want to call it. I want to give you two challenges this week, two devotional challenges for you as an individual, you as a family, for the Redeemer family. Uh, two things to focus upon and strive after this particular week as we move towards Good Friday and then we celebrate Easter on Sunday. First, I want you to ponder afresh, afresh the accomplishment, the accomplishment of Jesus' redemption of you, paying for your sins so that you can have a relationship with God. I want you to contemplate that anew. I know we spend a lot of time focusing on it. You might say it's the centerpiece of our church's life, redemption. Uh, the liturgy has a constant reminder of Christ's payment for us. The songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the fellowship we have is based on our sins being paid for by Jesus. So contemplate that in a new, fresh way this week, building towards a Good Friday as we consider Jesus' actual payment for our sins. But the second challenge I have for you this Holy Week, which I'm going to stress throughout the sermon this morning, has to do with you considering anew the example that our Savior has thus provided. Don't mistake what I'm saying. Jesus didn't come primarily to be an example. He came primarily to pay for our sins. He redeemed us from our sins. But he redeemed us to a new life. And the new life that he redeemed us to is modeled perfectly by himself. And I would suggest to you that his model is entirely different than what we usually think of in our natural minds or when we view the world's perspective on it. So the second challenge will be considering anew the example of Christ as a servant leader, especially as typified by his entrance into Jerusalem on so-called Palm Sunday. Consider his example as a servant leader and then seek to apply servant leadership to whatever area God has appointed you to, and every one of us will have some application when we consider this today. Allow me a little uh, more lengthy introduction to the text itself, as I'll be referring to several texts, as I introduce this concept, again, of Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry in the text I'll read. Uh, it comes, the version I'll read anyways, is in the book of Matthew. Before we get there, though, I want you to consider that as Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem for the last time, Passion Week, the day that we're thinking of, uh, there's much that has come before it, and one area for sure that lacks uh, no ambiguity is that Jesus always maintains he's king. Yes, he humbles himself, and there's no doubt uh, this terrible humil humiliation that happens to our Savior on our behalf. He never relinquishes the title of king. In fact, his entrance itself shows us he is, in fact, king. He's a servant king. And that, brothers and sisters, is the picture that's so unique to us. How many of us think of kings or rulers or leaders as people who are servants, who are humble? Well, he gives us the picture of what a true leader ought to be like, what we all ought to be like through his power. No ambiguity. In fact, early when Jesus is born, uh, besides all the forecasts of the king in the Old Testament, you remember the very first verse of the book of Matthew says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's a Jew, yes, but he's the son of David, meaning he is the, the prophesied king. 
Uh, by the time Matthew is written, the Jews had gone a long time without a king. They had been taken captive several times. They had been occupied by different powers. And so they longed for their king. And now the son of David is born. So Matthew declares, and people knew, devout people knew, the king was born. In fact, we know from, seems like Christmas just yesterday, or Easter's come early this year. In Matthew 2 it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews. So the kingship of Jesus is never in question by the biblical writers or those who are devout. Neither is his lordship, even as a young child. Neither is his role as the Savior. King, Lord, Savior, all of these things are still who Jesus is as he enters Jerusalem. I want us to keep that in our mind as we consider Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. Jesus is our example of a leader. Also what is clear is his role as Savior. In the 21st verse of the first chapter of Matthew, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, with all this as preface, consider Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Scholars tell us that there were no less than a half a million different pilgrims coming from all over Israel with their animals to Jerusalem for Passover. The same time Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time to go to the temple, 600, five to 600,000 pilgrims with their smelly animals are bringing them in the streets as well. So this picture of the sacrifices all coming towards the temple on this Passover event with the Savior, the perfect sacrifice, also coming at the same time is vivid. It's powerful for us. The king coming to be sacrificed. Now, with that in mind, hear God's word. Matthew 21. I'll read the first 11 verses. This is the so-called triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them, him and had, that had followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this remembrance, this yearly remembrance. Uh, we acknowledge that every time we come together as a body, we reflect upon the resurrection and the events around the resurrection, the payment uh, for our sins by our perfect Lord Jesus. But specifically this day, we think of uh, his entrance into Jerusalem, this final time, and what it means, what example it gives to us, our humble servant king, 
and how we can, because of redemption, live out this example with the, with the assistance, the help, the needed help of your Holy Spirit. I pray that not one of us would be changed, that every one of us would seek to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Palm Sunday offers a vivid picture, a vivid picture of Christ as a humble king. Let's think of the story for a moment before we seek to draw application. First of all, remember that the Jews as a nation are looking for a king. There is a mixture of opinions and perspectives in this crowd. Scholars will say they all were the same people who were shouting crucify him at the end of the week. Uh, Some will say that no, these were devout people and those were different people. I would suggest there's just a, a real admixture. In fact, the last verse has some people saying, who is this? So there's some confusion about what's going on. But the symbolism of what happens with the donkey, with the palm leaves, these things definitely have connection somewhere. And the Jews themselves were looking for liberation from their oppressors. And they weren't thinking of a king in terms of Gideon, the great leader, or Joshua, the great leader, or King David even. Maybe not even King Solomon. They were thinking more of a guy named Judas Maccabeus, who lived just less than 100 years before their time immediately. You see, for several hundred years, the Jews were occupied by different powers. You remember Babylon ultimately takes the southern kingdom. Then Persia takes Babylon. And then the Greeks had this great Alexandrian empire, and they take or occupy Israel again. And then the Greek empire starts to break up before the Romans come, and there's this this group called the Seleucids, part of the Greek empire, and they really oppress the Jews hard. In this family, the Maccabeans, uh, the Maccabeus family, had Judas and Jonathan and Simon, and they rose up and made a, had a military campaign against the Seleucids and took occupancy back from them for a short period of time. They rebelled against this power that everyone thought could not be rebelled against. And so Judas Maccabeus, by force of power, takes back Israel. Simon Maccabeus has made the prince kind of like a king now, and they're excited for this period of time. But then slowly but surely the Romans come in and occupy them again. So almost a hundred years have gone by and the Jews are sore oppressed by the Romans. They're sick of the Romans' uh, thumb upon them. On the other hand, the Romans are sick of the Jews because they're difficult to keep order. In fact, to be governor of Judea was like a curse because they were so difficult to live with, with the temple. In fact, 40 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Romans had enough and they wipe out the temple, destroy Jerusalem. So you've got all this political unrest, huge expectations, expectations that are beyond anything we can even fully appreciate, frustration by the Jews. And then this Jesus comes, who all sorts of rumors had swirled around. Yes, devout people knew who he was. Devout people truly worshipped him, had some understanding of his purpose. But the mass group, the mass group that Jesus wept over, missed it completely. They were thinking political liberation that this Jesus was going to be like the Maccabeans on steroids. Because they'd have to be to be able to take the Romans. The Romans and the Seleucids were not the same. The Romans were the, the greatest power that ever had existed at this point. They weren't going to be easily overthrown. But their expectation was this king who is coming that's been identified. Who's this? Who's that? That's Jesus. He's going to be the one that's going to overthrow the earthly powers. Now I want to stress that when the people say Hosanna, it literally means save now. I don't know that everyone meant it that way, but the word literally means save now. In other words, liberate us. And interestingly, the palm branches themselves symbolize the Maccabean period. 
In fact, if you would find a coin from the Maccabean period, if you remember our archaeology exam, uh, uh, lesson we had Sunday night a few weeks ago, on some of the coins there would be palm branches, and that's from the Maccabean period. And so the palm branch significance to a lot of the people was about liberation. That's the symbolism. It's what it meant. So as Jesus comes amid all these expectations, he did not respond to what we wanted, but he responded rather to what man needed. But still in the midst of all this excitement and all this frustration, here comes this king in their minds, the liberator. They put the palm branches down, their cloaks down, and he comes in. But there are two things that are still specific that still show us that he kept his identity, that he didn't give in to those pressures as the one who was supposed to free them from the Romans' oppression. Could have Jesus have done it? Absolutely. Would they still have been slaves after? To their sin, yes. He came to liberate them from something much greater. For eternity. But first he comes in on a donkey, which is a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy. It also harkens back to something interesting. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 1, as David is ending his reign as king and he's about to turn over the kingship to Solomon, listen to what David does. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Jehan. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. In connection to the prophecy that Matthew mentions and then this picture of a king coming in, inaugurated, Jesus' symbolic entrance into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey, still hearkens to him being king. He's a servant king, but he's king. Secondly, the fact that he is on an unridden donkey tells us something else. He's the king, but he's also a sacrifice. And he won't be defiled by riding a beast of burden that has been ridden before. The perfect sacrifice will be kept undefiled as he rides in on an unridden donkey. He's the king, but he's also the sacrifice. I would suggest to you that Palm Sunday gives us the beginning of the picture of the sacrifice for us, no doubt, at least the beginning of Passion Week's picture. But something more than that, brothers and sisters, it tells us something about rulership. It tells us something about leadership, that it's the epitome of the way Jesus does it. Uh, this is a picture of Jesus over and over again, the way he leads, the way he rules. And I want to try to convince you, based on the biblical data, that this is really how we've got to think when it comes to ruling, when it comes to leading. Every one of you has someone under your influence. Could be a little brother, could be a little sister, could be your child, uh, could be someone's ahead of a home, you could be uh, a manager at work, you could uh, have some position of leadership, you could own a company, whatever it is, where you have people given to your charge and you have some kind of earthly power over them. The question that will confront you is how do you use that power? And that's the question I think God asks of his children. Is it like Jesus used his power? Is it how he led? Or is it the way we might think of it in our natural mind, just to exert influence the way we want things to happen? I suggest to you that Jesus' whole life bears as an example to the redeemed for how we can now live differently and how it can have a total impact and a change and effect in the world. How do people generally view leadership is my question to start. I think for most people, uh, at least naturally, even Christians when they're thinking... Uh, less spiritually, they'll think leadership really has to do with possession of power. Oh, don't get me wrong. If I've got power, I'll deal with it benevolently. But it's really about power. It's ultimately about domineering in some senses. At least that's how it's taken by many leaders. 
Uh, One of the reasons why I think God was so grieved, humanly speaking, about the Israelites crying out for a king is because the Israelites were acting as though the monarchies in the known world at that time were all going real well. Like their problems were because they didn't have a king. God knew by giving them an earthly king, they would know oppression in a way they had never known before. Now, beautifully, the ultimate king that would fulfill all kings would be Jesus, quite the opposite of those earthly kings. But the people even thought they needed a king. And so kings rose, kings fell. But the idea was always that this position of power had some kind of domineering uh, aspect to it. Power is often the motivation for people seeking leadership. They want to do things their way. They want to make other people do it their way. Such a view, such motivation causes, in many cases, the person seeking leadership uh, to kind of put on an arrogance or a pompous attitude. Uh, you know what the definition of power trip is. And by the way, you probably met someone who's on a power trip, right? Have you ever been on a power trip? Don't answer that. But power trip, the definition is an action undertaken chiefly for the gratification associated with the exercise of power over another or other. Someone who just likes being in charge. And you know when you see those people at work or wherever it is, you go as far away as you possibly can. Because you know the general good isn't in mind. It's just simply want, a uh, person simply wants to have someone follow them. I think that's why people have dogs mostly. <laughs> but that's another subject. At any rate, another definition of ro- a power trip is a self-aggrandizing action undertaking simply for the pleasure of exercising control over other people. I know this is the worst case, but you have to confess and admit that in the sinfulness of your own heart, there's this part that likes, we like to boss people around. And certainly we see this in official capacities, in large ways, with large pictures of leadership. So much is beneath a person who seeks that. They wouldn't even do something down on the level of the people. And quite frankly, apart from the grace of God, we view leadership in a sinful, unhealthy, and harmful way. And Jesus comes to redeem us from our sins first and foremost, but he also redeems us to a new life, a new worldview, a new perspective, a new example. Think of some of the examples that uh, testify to the way men and women generally view leadership in their natural state. Uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden, of course, Adam is to blame as well, but Eve is the one who is being confronted by the serpent first, who is Satan. Listen to what is said, and you'll notice what the, the serpent appeals to in Eve. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, shall you not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And she got it wrong because that's not what God said. He didn't say he could touch it and didn't need it. So she's kind of talking or, or maybe bargaining, trying to figure out what information the serpent has that God has not told her. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, she says. But the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, this appealed to Eve. Never mind that she and Adam had dominion over the earth. That wasn't enough. I want to be like God, too. It's a power grab from the very beginning. The original sin has to do with a power trip. And it's no wonder leadership has struggled since. And here Jesus comes to redeem our view of leadership by the way he leads, by the way he rules. 
What about the kings of Israel? I mentioned kind of the tragedy of them asking for a king. But the very first king after Solomon, and Solomon started his decline as he started going after other gods. And his son Rehoboam was going to be the, son, the, the new king. And listen what happens. The elders of the nation come and tell Rehoboam, listen, your dad was tough on the people. The people are sick of taxes. The people are sick of this oppression, this yoke. You've got to take it off of them. These elders had watched a long period of time, even from before Solomon's reign, and knew that the people were getting uh, more and more oppressed and frustrated. And they told Rehoboam, you've got to reverse some of the stuff your dad was doing. Chill out on all the building projects. Go easy on the temple in your house for a little while. You've got to give them some relief. And so Solomon, instead of listening to those elders, he goes to his compatriots, his friends who he grew up with, who wanted a piece of the power to be on his cabinet when he became the king. And instead, those king, those friends tell him, no, you've got to show that you're boss. You've got to put the hammer down on the people. You should raise them. You should tell them if they think Solomon's bad, wait till you see me. And who does Rehoboam listen to? Here's the word of the Lord in 1 Kings. The king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given them, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Power gone to his head. His harshness and domineering approach caused the kingdom to split. The New Testament reveals that even among those guys that hung around with Jesus most closely, two of my son's middle names are named after James and John because they're the sons of thunder. Thunder can mean a lot of different things as far as boisterousness and so forth, but we like James and John. But one not so uh, glorious moment happens when they are arguing on the way uh, to Capernaum. They're arguing about who will be the greatest. And then in Mark 10:35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. I mean, imagine this. Because they're still confused. I believe the disciples didn't have a complete picture until after the resurrection. Because they're still kind of wondering who Jesus is and what he's doing. They see the miracles, and they come up to him at a free moment and say, we, we want you to do something for us. He said to them, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Hard to know motivation. They didn't say we want to be more powerful than you, but make us more powerful than everyone else. Okay, this gives us a true picture of the heart of man when we live in our own notion of what leadership is. And you don't have to look far to consider modern examples of leadership in this way. If you read all the stories recently of teachers taking advantage of students in the newspapers and online and all the different... This is a position of authority taking advantage of one who is under influence, under their influence. Uh, we see the same thing consistently in the workplace where bosses or superiors will take advantage of, abuse, misuse people who are given to their care, using their power in the wrong way. Every one of us can think of an example. Maybe you've been guilty of such action. Police officers sworn to protect instead use their position to harm, misuse authority for personal gain. You know, people get silly and downright foolish when they get power. You know, the governor of New York's not the first one to have this happen to him. And it comes from this idea of invincibility because they're in some kind of power. And the more you get, the more apt you are to do things that are just downright foolish to anyone who's analyzing it rationally. You don't think straight when you have this mindset about leadership. A sense of invincibility seems to come over. It happens with politicians. It happens with CEOs. It happens with heads of families. It happens with pastors. 
The wrong view of leadership leads to harm and hardship. The idea that it's for influencing you to do what I want to do is the beginning of the road of pain for all involved. So Christ comes and does something, gives us something entirely different. What is his example? Consider Jesus. Here is the Lord Jesus possessing all power, yet what does he do with all his power? He serves. Listen to John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, and this is John's version of the same events just earlier. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, what does he do next? He washes his disciples' feet. We'll return to that. But knowing that all things had been given into his hands. What is his immediate application of the fact that he has all power? To lord it? To stop the cross and say, I'm not going to do this. Why should I do it? I'm going to wipe you all out. Knowing that all the power had been given to his hands by the Father. He wraps his clothes around him and he washes feet. That must be our picture of ruling. That has to be our picture of leadership from the lowest level to the highest. It consistently has to be one of service for others. That's what Jesus did. All power given to him and he washes feet. Remember that next time your kids are ungrateful. Next time someone doesn't say thank you to you for something that you did, that you sacrificed for. Who are you doing it for? Are you serving them without looking for? Jesus sure wasn't looking for thank yous on the cross. He knew what his mission was. He did it for God and all glory went to God. And it's changed the world, and it continues to to this day. He possessed all power, yet he served. Paul writes of this in Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Paul says to the Colossians, He disarmed the rulers and the authority and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. And he did it by going to the cross. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus never relinquished his, his office of king, and he says he came to serve. That, that turns the power scale upside down. And I know we say it, and we know what Jesus did, but how often do we actually live it out ourselves in reaction to the way Jesus gives us the example? He turned the power scale totally upside down. You know, I referred earlier to James and John and their little struggle over who would be the greatest. Listen to the entire context. In Mark 9, he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and, of all, and servant of all. And he then took a child. What a picture. He takes a child who had very, almost no status in that culture, takes a child and put him on the midst of him, probably on his lap, just in front of them all. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, if you see everybody as one to serve, even this little child you may think is less of a citizen, then you're going to get, you're going to get it. You'll understand what I've come to do. I've turned the power scale upside down. It's not what, it, what you see is not what it really is. In Mark 10, 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13, after he 
knowing that the Father has given him all things to his hands, verse 3, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around them. There's nothing more demeaning that you can do than to wash a person's sweaty, nasty feet. But the Lord of the universe, given all power, that's his reaction to having been given all that power. And I don't expect that I can tell you to do this apart from the assistance of the Holy Spirit because if you are like me, your natural self will take over and you'll want to domineer. you want to lord it over. you want to influence. It's the Holy Spirit that can make you live like Jesus, nothing else. It's not you conjuring it. It's God taking the truth of the word and changing you from the inside out and starting to live and act differently towards others. And he commissions us to be people who are servant leaders. I've been blessed, and I know many of you have as well, with tremendous mentors in my life, from my, from my family to the people God brought into my life as a, as a youth and then even into my early ministry. And consistently, they've been people who have modeled this servant leadership to me. They were never above whatever had to be done. It didn't matter if they were leaders. They cleaned the toilet if they had to clean the toilet. That's just what they did because they were servant leaders. They viewed their job as uh, their mission or their ministry is to under the Lord. And if he was to lead, if they were to lead, they'd have to lead by example in all ways. And I'm so grateful for that. In fact, out of the three top mentors in my life, two of them weren't pastors or theologians. One was a man that was my supervisor when I was at Moody. I worked in the, in the crew that set up and took down for events. And he was my boss, and yet this man was one of the most humble people I have ever met, going ahead, taking the jobs that we didn't, he didn't want us to have because he knew they were junky. He'd do them. It just made you want to do them because your, your boss, your mentor, your superior was doing these. Uh, in seminary, I had another guy like this. We had to dig a lot of holes. Uh, the seminary's gotten highfalutin in recent years. But in my years, I was the backhoe. I was the bobcat. And so we dug, and... He would always be with his bad back, and he still works there today. I just saw a picture of him in the magazine. He'd be the one digging the hole at twice the speed that you could do it. I would definitely be the one that told one of me to go dig that hole. But just that, that, that quiet example to me taught me something about leadership. It made me want to follow him because of his lead. And my pastor, Pastor Ben, some of you have been able to meet I watched him in a very difficult pastoral situation where he was, see, unlike this church that has a very benevolent senior pastor and the pastors under them just love to work for him. The church that I was part of it for a time, it was a very difficult, the pastor viewed it as a CEO position and everyone else reported to him and literally had to fill out uh, a form of every, just about every hour of every day what you did. And I watched Pastor Ben for 10 years labor under this. And he put up with a lot of things that we noticed even as youth. Uh, everything from being responsible to cleaning stuff that, that he didn't have time to do. It's not that pastors can't clean. We should. But that shouldn't take the place of pastoring, and he would often have to do it all, to be there late after everyone was gone, locking up the buses, locking up the place, making sure it was clean, get in trouble if he didn't do it right. And I never heard him complain about that, even though in my mind it bothered me that he was treated that way. Never once complained and consistently gave me encouragement to go after this mission in my own life to be a pastor, to serve people, whatever, wherever God makes you do, he's still doing it, been doing it, lots of hardships. Those examples, those are the people that make differences in other people's lives. Are you one of those people? I want you to think about that. Let me give you a couple examples. 
Ordained leaders, obviously, I hope elders and the deacons of our church see themselves as servant leaders, not as rulers who lord it over. But how about our, us husbands to our wives? I mean, are there things that we do to serve our wives, maybe things that they normally would do in our household, that we can come along and do for them? Uh, serve them in some way that we wouldn't normally, just to express to them that we don't view ourselves as somehow superior, but rather called by God to lead, and part of that leadership is to help, to serve, to lay our life down. Is there some way you can do that this week, some way to practice that? Spring break, the kids are home. What a test to serve. Okay, maybe next week you can take this assignment. <laughs> Fathers to children. How often, dads, do we think of our children as, some, uh, as people to serve, as, as ones that even though they struggle with their own sinfulness too and that whole thankfulness thing and, the, and all the things that may frustrate you and you just get, you want to be upset with them, pause and think, don't do it for them and their thankfulness. Do it for servants. Do it to serve them for Christ. And watch how that will start to change their demeanor over time. It won't be every time. You're not going to get it every time. And if you're doing it for thank you, quit now. It's not going to happen. Not regularly, but then when it does, all of a sudden it shines. And all of a sudden you see this work of God in the life of your children. And it comes primarily from God's Spirit working through servant leaders in their lives. Mothers to children spend so much time with their children. They serve them constantly, probably in ungrateful, they probably feel totally unappreciated. Who are you doing it for? Do you see that this is God's appointed means to bring transformation in their lives? It's your constant service of them. Teachers to students, managers to employees, company owners to employees. Don't be one of those company owners that just has to get a little more out of the bottom line for yourself when you could do a little more for those who are under you. Elected officials to constituents, coaches to players, teachers to students, everyone towards each other. How about our church to those who entrust their children to our school? Many people, other believers, will entrust their children to our care for seven to eight hours every day. Can we serve them? Can we view it not as something that is, is a pain for the church, but rather as something that is a tremendous stewardship and we can serve the greater Christian community by helping their families and helping in the process of discipleship that they're embarking into, serving other churches, our church. How about our church to the community at large? I hope we come to be a place where the community can come for help in all manners, of all ways that we would serve the community around us, that we would care to invest in what's happening here in Kansas City, in Overland Park, where we are particularly. How about our church when we, we go to Juarez this year? I hope the team, we have 17 team members going to Juarez. I hope that your view is one of service for that, to encourage that church when you go there, to serve them. Not as the, the rich church from the United States that comes, but servants who will do whatever they need us to do to help advance their church in the mission and vision of the church and the glory of God in Juarez. Holy Week. These are your challenges. Ponder afresh the accomplishment, redemption of Christ for you. I hope you come Good Friday because that's what we're going to contemplate on in our communion service is the actual death of Christ for us. But I also want you to remember that he's redeemed you from the penalty and the power of sin. That means he's redeemed you to a new life. And Jesus is our example, our model. And we can consider this example now and apply servant leadership to everything we do and everyone we interact with. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life, for what you did. You received all power, and rather than curse us, you served us.
You said that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Lord, whatever our career may be, we want to acknowledge that true leadership means to receive power from you and to use it under your rule to serve people in your way. Lord Jesus, you have said, seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of leadership. You rule, not leadership. People matter most, not techniques. Lord, we acknowledge the heart of leadership is not mastering the how-tos, but in being mastered by the amazing grace of God and our servant, Savior, King, who has died for us. Lord, make us a different people. Make us look at other people differently. Help us to see them the way the Lord Jesus sees them and make us be a changed people as a result. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.